In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about whether bootstrappers should raise money or not. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 406. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's going on this week, Rob? We have uh, new iTunes reviews. Ooh, cool. What do we got? This one from Find Fitness Pros says, this is my go-to podcast every Tuesday morning. Robin might continue to give their insights, not just info on exactly what to do. And from Nathan Bell, he says, great information. I listened to one episode and I'm hooked. It was full of great information I can easily implement. Some of the info is a little bit advanced for me currently, but I'm confident that by selectively listening to more, I will pick up more. So those are a couple new iTunes reviews that we have. You know, I used to keep a, a worldwide tally of it using CommentCast. And when I moved to my new computer, I don't have the, the .exe or what is it called? It's a .app, I guess, in, in Mac. I don't have the executable anymore and you can't download it anywhere. So I moved over to mypodcastreviews.com, but it only gives me reviews, not ratings. So it, you, we're up to almost 600 worldwide ratings, I believe, right? Where you know people don't necessarily need to write sentences or whatever, but I don't have that tally anymore. Certainly we're above 600 at this point. So now what I have is I have 347 worldwide reviews and that's a lesser number and I want to get back to the where it's ratings. So it, I, I think the guy in my podcast review says that they are going to add uh, ratings in, but neither here nor there. The more reviews or ratings we get, the more likely more people find the show, the more motivation it gives us. So if you feel like we've given you some value as a listener to the show, it'd be awesome if you could open you know, iTunes or Stitcher and just give us a five-star review. Really appreciate it. You know, the solution to not having that app that gives you the numbers, just make up a number. So That's we have right. like 3,000 reviews, I think. 3,422 <laughs> reviews. That's great. How about you, man? What's going on this week? Well, this morning I published a public API for BlueTick. And uh, of course, I, I say it's a public API, but there's only one person who actually knows about it. <laughs> so it's in beta. Yeah, basically. Early access. Yeah. Yep, yep. Good. So I, I had a prospect who wanted to sign on and they're like, yeah, I really need to have a, a public API that is available for me and, and Zapier wasn't going to work for them. So Basically, as I said, I, I spun that out because I've heard it from a bunch of other customers that I currently have. And I started talking to them about what is it that you need and trying to figure out, like, what's the minimum that I could build that this particular prospective customer would need to get started. And they only needed four things. So built those, put them into it. And then there was all this infrastructure changes that needed to go into it. So it took like a week and a half just to do the infrastructure changes. But now that that stuff is all kind of taken care of, I've got that published out there and I'm waiting for them to kind of start using it and then figure out what needs to change. And I've already made it very clear up front, like, hey, here are some things that I know are going to change. And then here over here, like based on what you tell me, other things could change. So kind of treat this as a, an absolute beta. And then eventually at some point it'll become stable, I guess. And then I'll start pushing it live to everybody. That's nice. Uh, it's nice to do. I mean, you're basically doing customer development on what is kind of its own little products. I mean, you can say it's a feature, but it really, I mean, some entire products are just APIs. And so you want to get it right from the start. And by, by start, I mean, by the time you publish it and people start hooking into it, you just, you can't change it at that point. So I think it's really good to take this approach of 
roll it out slowly, roll out one endpoint at a time, and really think through you know how you want to structure it. I was just on your site trying to uh, guess the URL. I was gonna gonna just you know trying to type in a bunch of stuff. So you're gonna see a bunch of four or fours in your error logs. It's not a hacker. It was me, but I didn't find it. Alas. No, nah, that sucks. Oh well. <laughs> I would tell you if you ask for the yeah, price. Totally. <laughs> totally. So other than that, I uh, I also got my first fraudulent charge from BlueTick. So the uh, somebody Hooray. had signed up. Yeah, I know. It's uh, I mean, it took a it took a lot longer than I expected it to. But somebody signed up and then they logged in and obviously like they didn't pay attention to any of the onboarding emails and you know come time when they their trial was up they got charged and then I don't forget how long it was later. It was maybe a it was probably three or four days later, I got a notification from Stripe saying, hey, this fraud, this charge looks fraudulent. And I looked at it, and I think it was a debit card, too. And I was like, oh, great. And then, like, three hours later, they're like, oh, you've had a charge back. I'm like, wait, I didn't even get a chance to decide what to do about this potentially fraudulent charge. And they've already converted it into a charge back, which cost me an extra $15. So, well, that ah, sucks. Thanks. But, yeah. oh, well. So was the person not using it? Was it a stolen credit card? Is that what you think? Or do you think that they just went in with the intention? It was their own credit card and they just intended to do that the whole time. I'm not sure. Like it looked legit. Like the the email address, I couldn't quite tell whether it was real. I think it was a Gmail email address. So I couldn't really trace it back to a company or anything like that. But the name on it seemed to match what the email address was. So I don't know. I'm not entirely sure, but I think it was from a, like a real estate company or something like that. It's like, all right, well, whatever. Yeah, that sucks. I mean, it's going to happen, right? It's definitely a milestone you don't want to hit, but you're going to hit it, uh, you know, eventually. Yep. Certainly not a milestone to celebrate, but I definitely hit it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. So what are we talking about today? Well, today I thought we would have a discussion about whether or not bootstrappers should be raising money. And I guess by definition, if you're raising money, then you're, I don't know, are you no longer a bootstrapper at that point? But I, I think that maybe there's a, a time during which you are bootstrapping the company and self-funding it. I almost called it self-funding, like should uh, people who are self-funding raise money. But again, that would go against it. So the, the idea came because I saw Justin Jackson had tweeted out a link to a article that he wrote over on Indie Hackers called The Bootstrappers Paradox. And in that article, he shows a graph of what they're doing for Transistor.fm, which is the new startup that he's working on. And it basically shows a graph of like, oh, over the course of 60 months with 10 percent exponential growth and five percent churn the mrr will get to twenty one thousand dollars but 60 months is five years of time so i thought it'd be interesting to just have a conversation about this because when i was reading through the tweet that he had put out there were a bunch of people who chimed in on it you know mostly people listening to the show would have heard of like des trainer and jason cohen and natalie nagel they're giving their thoughts on this stuff and i just thought it'd be interesting to talk about it yeah I mean, that's for sure. That's the thing, you know, 10% growth every month sounds like an impressive number, but when the number starts very small, like at a thousand bucks a month, I mean, that means you're growing a hundred dollars of MRR a month and, and you can't, you just can't do that in the early days. Or if you do, it's going to take five years. So you either need to figure out a way to grow faster or you need to be really patient. And so, yeah, this is a struggle. I mean, it's funny that Justin called it the bootstrappers paradox. I don't know that it's that as much as it's, this is the reason people raise funding, right? This is why, I mean, it's easy for, for someone. And we know people who are just like bootstrapper through and through, you should never raise funding. And, and 37 Signals used to say that. And he even, you know, kind of mentions that, that DHH and Jason Fried took funding from Jeff Bezos two years after 
after launching Basecamp. And they put it in, it wasn't even funding that went in the company, they took money off the table. And if I recall, I think that number is public, right? I think it's $10 million that he invested was my memory. And maybe, I don't think I'm making that up. It's either rumored at that or it was like announced. So they had essentially at that point had FU money. And so it's really easy to make different decisions or to say, hey, we're going to grow as slow or as fast as we need when you have that kind of money in your personal bank account and you're just kind of running this business day to day. So this is, it's kind of a, Justin's article is like a bootstrapper's realization of, oh, shit, this is why people do raise money. You know, it's like coming to that realization at this point. And I think it's a good thing to call out for sure. I've been thinking about this so much. So I, I, I'm looking forward to today's episode because in my microgram talk this year, I talked about things that, that I learned bootstrapping and then self-funding and then in a venture back company, right? After Leadpages acquired us. And in the last five to seven minutes, I did just a little, little snippet about fund strapping, right? Which is this term that Colin from customer.io coined, where you kind of in between, right? You you bootstrap a little bit and you raise a small round. It's typically, I say it's between 200 and 500,000. And you raise it with the intention of getting to profitability without, you're, not, you're never going to raise institutional money. You raise it from friends and family or from angels. So you don't give up control. You don't give up a board seat. You really have the benefits of funding without the institutional chaos of it, right? Or the headache. And it was kind of, it wasn't a throwaway piece, but I almost didn't include it in the talk. And that piece has gotten me more emails, more comments, more thoughts, more people came up to me, asked me what that's like, asked if, if, if I would invest or if I knew people who were doing Fundstrap. You know, it was this fascinating response to this, this thing that's kind of been percolating. So that's, you know, kind of a, a long rant on it to, to start. But I just think this is a very, becoming more and more of a viable option and potentially even a necessity as the SaaS market gets more and more crowded. Yeah, and I think that that's the part that I think has changed over time where five, ten years ago, you could come out with a SaaS and you'd, you'd launch it to the public and you would start to grow by virtue of the fact that there was nobody else out there or there were very few competitors out there doing what you were doing. Now, if you launch anything, I mean, you've probably got a couple of competitors just right out of the gate. If you don't, then you probably don't have a product that that's going to go anywhere. But if you have any sort of competition, it's probably probably substantially more competition today than you would have had five years ago or 10 years ago. So just by virtue of having launched five or 10 years ago, you were going to be more successful quicker then than you would if you did the exact same thing now. And it's going to take longer, which means that you're going to burn through more runway and it's just going to be harder. Right. Now, five or 10 years ago, there was less competition, but the expenses would have been higher, right? 10 years ago, especially because you literally needed to rack servers. I mean, there was no Amazon EC2. Um, in addition, there was still like when Basecamp first launched on their homepage, they were like, you don't have to install any software. No downloads needed. You know, they were still educating on just the concept of being in the cloud. And there was there were hurdles there. That was almost 15 years ago. I mean, well, yeah, that's true. No, you're right. That was 2005 yeah. or six. So you're right, 12 to 13, you're right. But even with that, yeah, say 10 years ago, even with that, it still, I believe, was easier back then. And but that doesn't mean you shouldn't start something today. It just means you gotta you gotta hustle more, you gotta, you know, pick pick a better niche, you gotta have more skills, or you need a little more money in the bank. You know, whether that means you raise it yourself out of consulting efforts, which is what I did, or if there there is definitely more money being thrown around as funding these days that is 
I'm not going to say no strings attached because it's certainly they take equity, but that is not, you know, 10 years ago, if you took a half a million bucks, boy, that was typically institutional money. It was a pain in the butt to raise. You were giving up a lot of control. You're giving up a lot of giving up a board seat. That is no longer the case. There really is this viable option, this in between. And I think if you look at the businesses that, you know, in the past have tried to figure out how to raise capital, one of the things that most people, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, it was common to say, okay, let me go to a bank and get a, a loan from the bank. But that's a non-starter for most new businesses. I mean, you've got SBA loans and things like that, where you can use the money to take over an existing business where they're able to value it. But if you have a business that you're trying to get off the ground, a bank loan is just basically a non-starter, especially when it comes to SaaS, because they don't understand how to calculate how much that business is worth. There isn't any inventory. And with software, it's going to lag in terms of the revenue over something like a physical goods business or like a coffee shop or you know a fitness studio where they know how many people are coming in and they can put a value on the equipment, whether it's the coffee machines or the, you know, the spin cycles in a fitness studio. Like, Banks are okay with that. They understand that. But when you've got a software business, the expectations today are much higher than they were five or 10 years ago. So you have to do a lot more in order to make your product a lot more polished, which means it's going to take time to do that, which burns through your runway. So you burn through that money a lot faster today than you would. I guess you wouldn't burn it through it faster. It's just you burn through more of it than you would have 10 years ago to get to the same point. And even if you can get a loan, you, you have to sign a personal guarantee. So now all your personal assets are on the line. And if you decide to shut the company down, you owe that money. You know, so if you borrow a hundred grand, that's a big deal, right? To me, that is more risk than I think entrepreneurs should take unless you're at the point where you already have, all right, I'm at 10K MRR, you know, in which case you may or may not need the money, but if you're at 10K MRR, you should just raise equity funding anyways. But, you know, if you know the business is going to succeed, that's fine. But when you're starting off, when I hear that people, you know, charge 50 grand or 100 grand on credit cards to start a SaaS business, I'm like, oy vey, that is, that is going to be catastrophic. Like that is a really, really stressful way to live. And it's something I would, I would not do, especially when we're in a space where raising equity capital is relatively inexpensive. Raising a, a, a small angel round and selling 10% or even 20% of your company to reduce a lot of stress and to get there faster I think is a pretty reasonable, it's a pretty reasonable idea these days. And it's, you know, it's not that, it's not impossible to do, I'll say. Well, I want to talk about that specifically right there. What you just said was raising capital is relatively inexpensive. And the reason I like the way that you put that is that when I think of the way I thought about raising funding years ago was that, oh, I'm going to have to give up a lot of control. I'm going to have to give up a lot of equity. And I don't necessarily want to do either of those things. But if you're thinking about putting together a business and you have anybody who's helping you, a partner or co-founder or something like that, you're immediately giving up 50% of the company anyway. And is there a whole lot of difference between doing that and giving up 50% when there's really nothing there? And yes, it could grow up to be something huge, but you're giving up 50%. So there's like a mental block there of you saying, okay, well, I'll, I'll raise you know $250,000 in exchange for 10% of this, and, and you don't want to do that, but you're willing to give up 50% to somebody else when there's really nothing there that's being invested except for their time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's cognitive dissonance, I believe, is is the term where it's like two things that don't agree but or paradox, I guess. It's it's something in your head that you're you're rationalizing one way, but then you turn around and give away 50% to a co-founder, right? That's what you're saying. It's like you can give up a small amount to get a big chunk of money and 
or even if it's a small chunk of money. I mean, th- here's the thing. If you live, let's say you live in the middle of Minnesota or the middle of Nebraska or something, and you have an idea and you raised even a hundred grand or 150 grand and you paid your, for your salary for a year, a year and a half, that gives you a year or a year and a half to get to some point of revenue that makes sense. And even if you gave away 15% of your company, you're valuing it a million bucks right off the bat. Or if you give away 20% at 750K, it still makes your life a lot easier. And I think that's the, that's the realization I'm coming to is that at MicroConf or through this podcast or, or wherever at different conferences, like we meet smart people who are trying to launch businesses and something that stands in their way often is that I have a wife and kids. I have a house. I can't do this nights and weekends, but I don't want to raise funding because it's really complicated or I don't know how or there, you know, I, I do think that there, I mean, I, and this is what's funny is you outlined this episode and you kind of brought the, the topic up, but this is something I've been thinking a lot about. And there's a gap here in the, in the space. We do have folks like Indy.VC, which if you haven't heard uh, my interview with Bryce from Indy.VC, it's episode 310 of this podcast and it's a more realistic approach to funding. It's kind of a funds dropping model. I'd recommend you go listen to that. In addition, I am noodling, you know, I kind of feel like there's a, we're coming to an inflection point where there's this, this gap and there's a level of interest in something and no one is filling it. And so no spoilers on what I'm up to next, but I, I'm starting to feel like I might be the person to, to tackle this, right. To take it on and to, I mean, I've been spreading the word about it, right. I've been talking about this for years, but it's like, and I've been investing in startups like this, right. We talk about uh, churn buster, um, lead fuse, cart hook. These are all small angel investments. I've done about 12 angel investments. And I think three or four of them are, were essentially like fund strapped, right? It's where they took money from a handful of folks and they never planned to to raise a series A. So I put my money where my mouth is, but now I'm thinking I only have so much money and you know, how, how is it that I can take this to the next level, like in in a realistic way? So it's something that, that is definitely in the back of my mind. And it's something that I think I've been thinking a lot about and hopefully we'll dive into more in the future. Speaking of that, if you are interested in, if you listen to this and you're thinking, ah, this is an interesting topic, go to robwalling.com, enter your email, because it's going to be something that I'm going to be thinking more about in the future, as well as on this podcast, for sure. One of the comments that jumped out at me on the uh, Twitter post that Justin had put out there was from Des Trainer, and he said, I think a second piece people don't really internalize is that 60 months of the best years of your career is a substantial upfront investment too, like a seed round, but instead of money, it's your life. And that's a fascinating way of looking at this because, you know, even back in the day, like I would always say, oh, well, you know, you're basically trading money for time. And I don't think that I ever really equated time with like years of my life which, you know, is, it sounds intuitively obvious, like those, yeah, that's, that's the exact same thing. But when you're in the middle of working on stuff, you don't think, oh, I'm trading five years of my life away of like hard toil to be, to get this thing to where it could be a lot sooner if I were to just take, take some money and trade some of that equity for it. Right. Could feasibly be a lot sooner. It may or may not, right. It may, money doesn't solve all the problems, but it certainly, it certainly makes things I'll say less stressful and you know, having experienced done it with true bootstrapping with basically nothing and doing nights and weekends to then self-funding with revenue from hit tail going into drip and then venture funded. I mean, I've kind of done all three of these. I will tell you that having that venture money, I, you know, I didn't have to raise it and I, I did attend the board meetings, but I didn't necessarily have to report to the board, but that my life was less stressful at that point than either of the, the, the prior two, um, scenarios. I think it's a good point, man. And, you know, I don't want to come off, you can tell I'm coming off very pro kind of pro raising a small round. And I think it's, 
I don't want it to come off too one-sided. We've never been anti-funding ever. Like from the start, microconf, I think in like the original like sales letter, it was like, we're not anti-funding, we're anti, everyone thinks the only way to start a software company or a startup is with funding. Or that may be from the introduction to my book, actually, Start Small, Stay Small. So even back then in 2010, I was saying, look, raising funding is, is not evil in and of itself. It's the things that you have to give up by raising funding. Just know what you're getting into, you know, because you, yes, we have seen founders that are get kicked out of their own company. Yes, we have seen founders that wind up. Uh, there was a, I forget what the app it was. Was it Tinder? Something sold for 460 million. No, it's FanDuel. It sold for 460 million and the founder who had started it, and I believe was CEO when it started, he got no money because of liquidation preferences. And so he's suing them. I mean, that's a huge exit. And he, he got, I, th I believe it was $0 from the exit. And so there was, it was an R TechCrunch article or something that was like, he's suing them now, which I don't, I mean, hey, if, if the contracts say this is what the liquidation preference is, that's one thing. But he's suing him because he thinks they screwed with uh, the valuation intentionally and there was, you know, I don't know, fraud or something. So he's not suing the basic... He's not going to win if he just says, no, that wasn't the deal because he signed the papers, right? I mean, these these VCs are not stupid, but he's trying to, to do that. So yes, that does happen. But I believe there is a way to do this and I'm seeing it with these smaller SaaS apps, a way to do it without that much stress, right? Without giving up that much, that much equity. Oh, Brennan Dunn, right message. That's another one, right? Oh, I also wrote a check. Oh, and, and Rand Fishkin, Spark Toro. He's doing the same thing, right? He's not calling it fund strapping, but he said, hey, we're going to raise around and we're going to get to profitability and we don't want to do institutional money. You know, and if you listen to Lost and Founder, which is his book, he talks about the perils of, of all that. And you could read that and say, because uh, he really didn't like, once they raised funding, he really didn't like it. And you could look and say, well, Rand's anti-funding now, but no, he just raised around. He's more anti-institutional money, and there's a difference, right? Venture capital is institutional money. The, these angel rounds uh, tend not to be. But I think when, even back when you and I were talking, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but like we've always, as you said, always had the position that like, it's not that we're anti-funding, it's we're anti, this is the only way to do it. And that's that's always kind of been my thought behind it. I've always been, I'll say the majority of my career and thought process has been like, yeah, I really just don't want to take funding. And it's more because I don't necessarily want to give up control. But back then, there weren't really the options for that. And now things have changed a lot. So, you know, it's kind of not say front and center on my radar, but it's something that I'm definitely looking at and interested in exploring a little bit more because I definitely think that like with Blue Tick, for example, there's ways to go further faster, but I just don't necessarily have the money to be able to do it, which kind of sucks. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's always a, a trade-off. And I think that's what you always have to consider is what is the trade-off and what am I going to have to give up in order for me to get X amount of influx? And, and then what are you going to do with that? Because you kind of have to have a plan. You can't just say, I want to raise money. You have to have a plan for not just raising money, but also what are you going to do with that money when you get it? You know, how are you going to deploy it? How are you going to build the company and how are you going to grow things? Because you can't just drop $100,000 in your bank account or 500000 and say, okay, great, I've raised money, now what? Because they're not going to give you the money <laughs> if you don't have a plan. Right, and, and if you don't know what you're doing, money's not going to fix that. You're just going to make bigger mistakes. 
And that's why, like, this comes back to the stair-step approach. Like, I would not, no chance I would have raised money with, in 2005 to 2009, with .NET Invoice and Wedding Toolbox and Just Beach Dows and stuff. Even if I could have made the case that .NET Invoice would grow to something, I would have made huge mistakes because I made small ones back then. But I learned and I gained experience and I gained confidence. And by the time I got to Hittail, I remember thinking, yeah, because remember, I, I bought it. I bought Hittail for 30 grand and then, uh, you know, I grew it up to basically that much MRR per month by the end. And I, th- I evaluated like, maybe I should raise a little bit of money and it would make this a little easier. But to me, it was the headache of it. I was like, I do not want to slog around and spend months asking people and then the paperwork. It just felt like a pain in the butt to me. And I don't know if I could have, like, did I have the name recognition? Could I have raised enough? Arguably, yes. By the time I got to Drip, it was definitely like, if I hadn't had that Hittail money, let's just say I'd had none of it, right? Because I, I basically used a bunch of the revenue from Hittail to fund Drip. If I hadn't had that, I absolutely would have seriously considered doing what we're talking about, raising a small round. I knew Drip was ambitious. I knew it was going to get big, at least by the time we were six or eight months in, and it, it had a need for that. So that, that's what we're saying here, right, is, is the words always, never, and should, they're not helpful words. So don't say I should always raise funding, I should never raise funding, I should raise funding, other people think I should or I shouldn't, or these are not helpful words. Just evaluate things and look at them. And like you said, look at the trade-offs, right? The pluses and the minuses and the realities of them, not the FUD, right? Not the the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Because I can tell you the story, oh, look, the founder of FanDuel, he got screwed by his investors, therefore I'm never going to raise investing. And it's like, that, or I'm never going to raise funds. It's like, that's dumb. Like, actually look at the, at the black and white of it. And I think that's that's what we're talking about today, right? We're not saying you should or should not, but it's look at the reality of it. Now, you and I talk about talked about this in depth in episode 211, when to consider outside investment for your startup. And we went in depth on what a friends and family round, an angel round, or often called a seed round was. We talked about series A, B, C. Once you get to the series, that's when you get to institutional money, which is where things get way more complicated. And that's once you raise a series A, it's the point of no return, right? You basically, it's implied you're going to raise a B, a C, and go on to either have this huge exit or an IPO. And it's kind of growth at all costs for most, most part. But if you're able to stop before that series A and stick to people who are on board with, you know, angel investors and such who are on board with, hey, I'm just going to, let's build a 5 million, 10 million, $15 million company with a, it's SaaS. So it's going to, you know, let's do a 30, 40, 50% net margin on this thing. That's great. That's the kind of company I want to build. And that's the kind of company I want to, I want to invest in. But venture capitalists don't want to invest in that. So if that's not your goal to go to a hundred million and to do what it takes to do that, then you don't want to go down that road. You want to have those expectations clear both in your head up front, as well as anybody who's writing you a check. Right. The problem with that is that episode 211, when we talked about that, that was four years ago. Like that's a long time in internet time. I might need to go back and listen to that episode to hear what we said. I don't know if we talked, I, I, how much you want to bet? Oh, I'm going to go search it and see if the word fun strapping, if I mention it in there. Mm, I don't think so. Oh, it is. Yep. Is it? Yep. About 20 minutes in, you said, I heard the term fun strapping and I really like it. It was from Colin at customer.io. There it is. <laughs> 20 minutes and boom. So this was 2014, November of 2014, even, th- even back then. But you were in the middle of drip at the time, right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yep, in the middle of drip. And I was probably already thinking about, because at this point, we were growing fast and I was dumping all the money I had into it, both from that revenue and from Hittail. And I was thinking, boy, if I had a half million bucks right now, given our growth rate, could have raised it. You know, if I had a half million bucks right now, we could grow faster. Like I could hire more and have more servers and not, not shut down EC2 instances on the weekend. 
we used to do mm-hmm. that to save money. <laughs> I mean, it was insane, you know, the, the lengths to, and I remember evaluating, um, was it, it was Wistia versus like Sprout video and Wistia for what we needed was 150 a month and Sprout was 30 and Sprout is, you know, it, it's, it's a nice tool, but there's no way it's Wistia. And, uh, I went with Sprout video cause I needed that 120 bucks to pay something else, you know, and I just never, and then we had to migrate later and it was a bunch of time and all that stuff. I never would have made that choice if, if we'd had a little more money in the bank, you know, it's the luxury of, of having some investment capital. Yeah. And then, and unfortunately, like you have to make a lot of trade-offs like that and you spend a lot of mental cycles and overhead making those trade-offs and just making the decisions because you don't have the money, which is a kind of a crappy situation to be in. But I mean, all of that said, the part of the problem is that you don't necessarily want to raise money if the idea itself or the business model just simply doesn't have merit. And maybe that's partly what those investors are are there for is to make sure that they're, they act as something of a filter. But I mean, that's always the a problem that I've seen with angel investors is that like they're the ones who are kind of in control, not you. And maybe angel investors isn't the right word, but like outside investment where they basically end up getting control of enough of it that you don't get to make the decisions anymore. Like they're the ones who kind of make the decision about whether or not your business is going to succeed based on whether or not you get the money, especially if you can't, if you can't set aside the time and uh, like on nights and weekends to be able to do it. And it's just not going to work out. Like if you need that money in order to make the business work, then it's going to be a problem for you down the road. And that's the thing is the losing control of your business tends to be if you raise multiple rounds because each round you sell, let's say, 15 to 20% is typical, maybe 15 to 25%. And so if you do one round, you still have control, right? You and your co-founder or you, if you're a solo founder, still own that 80%. But if you do another round, another round, you get two, three rounds in, it's typically by series C or D where the founders are the uh, minority shareholder, right? And, and investors now own most of it. So if you don't know, go down that path, it's unlikely. Or if you just make bad decisions. I mean, I saw someone on Shark Tank where they they had no money up front and they like sold 80% of their company to the to an investor, to an angel investor. And the, the Shark Tank guys are like, we can't fund you because you're working for, for nothing. Like all the work is for the investor, right? So if you make a bad choice, that's another way to do it too. But so you do need to educate yourself about it. And um, I think that's something that some people don't want to do because it is kind of boring stuff. I actually got the audio book. I really like the books that Brad Feld does. And this one is like on maybe like venture funding or like a so-and-so's guide to venture funding. And I got like four chapters in and I just I couldn't stand it because it was all terms. He didn't write it. It was more of a series that he's involved in. And the terms were, were just so boring. You know, it's just so boring that I stopped. So I understand if you don't want to learn it all, you kind of need, you know, you need to learn enough about it to do it. I wanted to flip back to something that Natalie Nigel responded to Justin Jackson, and it was actually just what I was thinking when I saw his graph. It was five years to 21K MRR. In all honesty, dude, I would shut that business down before I waited that long. Like that, you know, we, I, don't, I forget how long it took drip, but it was maybe a year. I don't think it was even a year from when we launched, and it was probably 12 to 18 months from when we like broke ground on code that we hit 21K MRR. And drip was a admittedly, a bit of a Cinderella story, right? It was faster growth than most. But if you're growing $100 a month in the beginning and you continue that 10% growth like that, you can't do that. I mean, you need to get it up. To- but I don't, th- I don't think that's a fair comparison though. Because with if you look at the way Drip was funded and like you said, what, 21 months or so to get to that point? Like he's talking about a... Com- He's talking about a completely self-funded company versus something where you put money in from Hittail. 
Like those are two entirely different things. And drip is a, and I don't know all about like the details of transistor, but my guess is that there's a huge disparity in terms of the amount of code and the quality of code that needs to go into something like drip because of the sheer complexity of it versus something like transistor. Yeah, that's true. And I was for, I mean, I, I was further along on my entrepreneurial journey too, I would say, right? I've had successes that I've parlayed into it. So you're right. It's probably not a fair comparison. I shouldn't say with drip, but... I was just arguing about the point of like, if it was six years, you know, five years to get to $20,000 in MRR, like, should you shut that down? And I think it's a very different answer based on what it is that you're putting into it. Like if it's, if you're dumping $200,000 into it, yeah, you probably should shut it down if it's going to take you still take you five years to get to that. But if you put nothing into it or $10,000 into it, but it takes five years to get there, it's like, uh, well, I don't know. It's a judgment call. It's interesting. Yeah. And that's the thing is when I think back to, you know, in 2005, I started with .NET Invoice, right? Making a couple grand a month. It took me until late 2008 to get to where I was making about a hundred K a year, hundred between a hundred, 120 K a year. And that's when I stopped consulting. So it took me three and a half years, but again, I did it with no funding and I cobbled it all together myself, but that's, that's the situation we're talking. I wasn't doing SaaS, right? I did it with these multiple products. I think if I was less risk averse, I could have done it faster. I think, I think that's probably what we're talking about here, right? It's getting more ambitious, a little more ambitious and trying to speed things up. How, how do you do that? Part of being more ambitious these days, I think, is because you're forced to because of the level of competition that's out there. Like you have to do something that is a little bit is quite a bit above and beyond what you would have done three or five years ago because the the competition is there and people are going to be asking for features that they see in other products that you're trying to compete against. If you don't have those features, they're going to say, well, I could pay the same amount of money to you versus this other product. And they've already got those features. So why would I go with you? And it's, you're just not able to compete unless you have those features there that you can demonstrate. And it's not even not just about the marketing. It's about having the things that they need. And because if you don't have them, they can't go with you. It's not even that they like you. It's that they just won't do it. Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, again, funding, even the way we're talking about it, it's not going to fix all, all ills. You know, if you pick a market that's too small or you don't build a good product, you're not, you're not going to get traction. Or if it's a market that people aren't interested or you don't know how to market, you don't have the experience. I mean, this doesn't, you don't suddenly become an expert startup founder just because you raise funding. But if you have the chops and, and funding is a big piece or time, you know, if time is a big piece because you're only working nights and weekends and you can only put 10 hours a week into it, right? Or 15 hours, it's a big difference if you can suddenly go to 40 or 50 hours, you know, with, with two co-founders. So it, it doesn't fix everything. In addition, you know, does it come with complexity? Yes. I mean, it's certainly you have to report to your investors once a month with an email. You can feel the stress of that. Like I know that that was actually something that I asked Justin McGill, Jordan Gall, and Matt Goldman, which are the, those are, you know, co-founders of those three businesses I mentioned earlier, Cart Hook Lead Fuse and, and Turnbuster. And I said, hey, do you feel like raising this money made things more stressful or less stressful? And they each had their own take on it, right? I, if I recall, Justin McGill was like, it's more stressful because I feel like if we don't grow, I'm going to let you guys down, you know, and a lot of the investors he has a lot of respect for. And, and so, th so that's one way it cuts too, right? It can make it more stressful. If I recall Jordan, I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but I think Jordan had said it's like more stressful, but better because it, it motivates him and it, it motivates him to succeed. So that you got to think about what you, you know, how your personality is. And if you feel like it's going to add more stress, if suddenly five or 10 people that you really respect that are friends, colleagues, and, fellow microconf attendees write a check to you, like, how, you know, how does that make you feel? 
Yeah, and I think that the answer is going to be different for every person, especially like depending on how, like what your product is like and what the expectations are and how you've positioned it and how the investor views it. Because some investors just say, yeah, you know, I may lose all this and that's totally okay. And others may say, like, I had these expectations and you're not meeting them, you know, if you miss a deadline or something like that. So it's, there's a lot of dynamics and complexity there and some people will thrive in it and some people won't. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, I also feel like having money is going to make it has the potential to make the downsides of your product or business model worse. Like it'll just exacerbate some of those issues. If you don't have a market that you can actually go to, if you think you do, but you don't and like you get a bunch of money in, I think it's just going to make it worse because yes, you can try a bunch of things and you'll be able to throw money on it, but then you're burning more money than you would have otherwise. That's the thing I would say. I mean, this is a good, I know we're going long on time, but really important. I would not raise any type of funding before I had product market fit. That's a personal thing because A, your valuation is way less before then. And B, I mean, no one's going to give you money if you don't have a product, period, right? You have to have a product these days. And you can't raise money on an idea unless you're Rand Fishkin, right? Or Jason Cohen or, you know, a founder who's been there and done that. So, you have to have a product. You have to probably be live or at least have beta users. You should have paying customers. That's a bare minimum to even think about trying to raise funding. So you have to get there. You have to write the code or you have to beg, steal, and borrow to get someone to write the code. But the valuation is going to be way less and you're probably going to burn through a lot of that money just trying to get to product market fit. I mean, from the time you launch until you have product market fit, I'm going to say it's six to 12 months if you know what you're doing. And you see founders like Sean Ellis, you saw Jason Cohen, you saw me do it with Drip. I mean, you see people who are who are pretty good at it and know what they're doing and it still takes them six months, you know, it still takes nine, 12 months to do it. At that point, once you do it and you do kick into a little bit of that growth mode where it's like, okay, people are really starting to uptake it. Boy, that's when you pour gasoline on the fire. But before that, I mean, I have seen at least one startup in the last year raise a small round before product market fit and just burn through it really fast because they staffed up to try to do, you know, do a lot of marketing and do a lot of sales. And it just, the, the, their churn was so high, right? And that's typically where you can tell is people aren't converting to paid or they aren't sticking around. So there are dangers there. So you can't just, this is not a, this is like a samurai sword, like I've said in the past. It's a weapon that you kind of need to know what you're doing with to wield well. And I think you need to be smart about when, when you raise. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, there's, there's obviously different takes on it. If you want to go down like the VC or angel route, series A funding down the road, like you, I think it's possible to probably raise money. Like if you have any sort of history or relationship with them, like if you don't have a product yet, but you're still also going to get eaten alive in terms of the equity shares and everything. But I think that point that you raised about like, you have to have a product and you have to have paying customers before you start to go raise money. Like that's how you maintain your equity, the, the or at least a, a fair amount of the equity, the, enough of the control to be able to do what you want and need to with the business and also be reasonably assured and confident that you're not going to just waste the investor's money and burn those relationships because you can use that money for good and you know what that money will do for you versus like you're still trying to get to product market fit and you don't know who's going to buy it or who uses it or why. Yeah. And you know, the one exception as I'm thinking about it is if, if you raised a big chunk, let's say you raised 250 or 500 and you feel like you need to spend it. And so you staff up, but you don't have product market fit, you're going to chew through your money. But the exception I could think of is like I said earlier, what if you just bought yourself 12 months of 
time and you didn't staff up, but you just worked on it or 18 months, right? So you didn't raise this huge amount of money. You raised a small amount to just focus on it and work. I could see doing that before product market fit because that would get you to the point where then you could raise that next round. So I realize that's a, I'm, I'm not trying to be wishy-washy, but I am realizing, A, I never said never raise before product market fit, but I did say I wouldn't personally, but I have the resources to get me to product market fit and I could work on it full-time to do that. So it's an exception, right? It's like if I was doing it nights and weekends, then I would take money, you know, before. So you have to think about where the, where the advice is coming from or where the thoughts are coming from. So I'm just thinking it through as if, yeah, no, if I was literally doing this nights and weekends, I would consider taking money as soon as I could if I was going to go down this road because going full-time is, is a game changer, right? Being able to focus full-time, being able to leave everything behind is a big deal. It, it, it really is, an, you know, a night and day difference. So. Yeah, I wonder what investors in general, and I know there'd be a range of opinions on it, but I wonder what most investors would think about somebody saying, hey, I've got this product, I've been working on it, and I'd like to get some funding and money in the banks basically to extend the runway because I've got a little bit of something going here and I've got partial product in place, I've got some customers, but it's not a lot and I need runway in order to make it work, but I don't know specifically how much runway I necessarily need or how I'm going to get to having... 10k 20k MRR and but I need the time to get there like there's something here but I don't know what and it's I think it's hard to evaluate for anybody kind of what that looks like yeah I don't think there I don't know of any investors today that would work with that and I I think that's a good thing to bring up is like well is that a gap in the market then you know is there it could that be a successful funding model of looking at people who, you know, essentially have the potential and have, like you said, pre-product market fit, but have something to show for it and looking at kind of backing them for a period of time. So anyways, I love this topic and I think that we'll probably, you know, talk about it again. You'll certainly be, you know, hearing more on it from me, but I feel like we might need to wrap this one up today. Yeah. Great talk. I liked it. Me as well. So if you have a question for us about this or any other topic, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each and every episode. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.